I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, what are you doing in your life? Oh boy, what am I doing? Well, it's been a wild week here. My partner's still gone. I made a giant batch of chili I've been eating for several days straight uh, because I'm not responsible for anyone else. My cat got sick. I had to take him to the emergency vet. I feel like, um, you know, it's true what they say in philosophy. Without without the presence of the other, all civilizational norms do break down. So I'm sure if you're (laughs) listening to this and you're single, fantastic. You've probably got it figured out. I apparently am not capable of being a single regular adult anymore. So, yeah, you've yeah. reached the chili stage of your life <laughs> being gone. That's exactly right, and it, I feel like a big bowl of chili. <laughs> well, great. Hope she comes back soon. <laughs> for your sake, <laughs> me too. It's beans all the way down over here. <laughs> I think that since um, since she's been gone, I, we've been we've been talking in the evenings a bit more, and my wife does keep asking when does Emily come back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that I've made my burden yours as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, all right, folks. Well, this isn't what our podcast is about. We're not talking about we're not talking about wives on this podcast. That's, <laughs> Just a couple of wife guys having a podcast. <laughs> That's not what anyone needs. No one's <laughs> no one's asking for that. Um, we're going to talk about uh, fundamentalism, evangelicalism, um, and how those things work out within Latin American politics. That's the really that's what people want on this podcast. <laughs> the thing that uh, my wife probably does not want me to talk to her about for an hour, so you all have to listen <laughs> to it. Yeah, you got to get it out. You got to get it out now before <laughs> she comes back. Uh, you got to purge all of those <laughs> those big <laughs> those big feelings about this. <laughs> That's right. Uh, We are going to talk about fundamentalism and all the things that Matt just said. And we're going to do it with the help of something that we talked about uh, last week on the show, Tricontinental. They have been publishing all kinds of really interesting literature for a long time. Tricontinental, if you didn't listen to the last episode, is a historical organization that started in Cuba as a result of meetings between uh, third world countries and it had a, a long and very illustrious life, but it's recently been sort of revived by uh, Vijay Prashad and a bunch of other researchers. And now they put together these resources for people on the left who are trying to get a handle on global struggle, especially in the global south. And wouldn't you know it, they made one especially for us at the Magnificast. 
uh, a dossier that's called Religious Fundamentalism and Imperialism in Latin America, Action and Resistance. And I got to tell you, it's really good. Um, it comes out of a Brazil research team associated with the Tricontinental, which is great. Um, so you get a sort of Brazilian left take on religion in the region, and I think it's really unique. So we'll talk that through. Maybe the key thing that the dossier affirms and that we're always saying on this podcast is you can't really tell the story of Latin American politics without talking about religion. And we focus mostly on maybe the progressive pieces of that story, uh, especially liberation theology and all that kind of stuff. And we'll talk about that again. But there's also a, a really deep history of, of liberatory politics and, and Christianity that bumps up against the maybe export of evangelical imperialism from the U.S. And then evangelicalism has all kinds of weird mutations. So anyway, we're going to use this dossier to guide our chat a little bit. Yeah, the dossier gives a really big overview. I think like sometimes it's maybe a little bit too big and other times I think it's just right. <laughs> um, but it's a great overview of like the American roots of Christian fundamentalism. And then it lays out how that particular variety of Christianity made it into Latin America and like what that means politically and, and how that functions. Right. Also, as an aside, something else that I think is cool about this dossier is like this is like a meta a meta discussion, <laughs> which is. Uh, which is a great place to be when you're like five minutes into a podcast. Um, but something else that's very cool about this particular dossier is that it's like one of the few places, I think, uh, where leftists are talking about religion in a critical way, but not like cynical way or an overly antagonistic way mm -hmm. either. So that's pretty interesting. It, it, that it's, re it's revelatory, I think, about how um, some leftists, especially the good ones, <laughs> think about religion in a way that's not like reductive to its worst elements. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do love that piece. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that a bit as well as we kind of go along. Uh, but overall, this episode, we're going to work through Tricontinental's thesis about fundamentalism and how it is a reactionary type of theology and, uh, and also an imperialist type of theology. And reflect on the ways that fundamentalism in places like Brazil and Bolivia are deeply connected to the imperialist project of the United States. So, man, a lot of things that people on the, uh, that people who listen to this podcast definitely like. <laughs> I hope so. Um, I think so. So there's probably a thousand ways into the conversation. One thing that I do like about the dossier is that it is written in such a way that it presents a pretty clear narrative, um, and we're not necessarily following it in too close of a chronological order. So I encourage you to read it. It doesn't. You can read it in like less than a half hour. Um, it uh, it walks you through pretty carefully. But I thought um, maybe one place we could just dive in is talking about the Latin American situation because I think the U.S. stuff. I mean, it's interesting. We'll touch on it, but it feels like maybe if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't need as much of an explainer on that piece. <laughs> like we can draw out some of the the extra stuff later on. But I mean, it's cool to see how maybe like U.S. evangelicalism is narrated from the perspective of people in Brazil. But uh, and we could talk about that in a minute. But maybe for the purposes of our episode here, we can start with Latin America. So they do us a favor in this dossier by giving us some extremely great stats. And here they are. The overwhelming majority of Latin Americans are Christian, including over 80% of the population across the region, Catholic and Evangelical combined, and over 90% of the population in countries such as Bolivia, Ecuador, Paraguay, and Peru. All countries in the region have a population that's at least 50% Christian, with the exception of Uruguay, where the figure is 44%, 
and in many countries, there's a shift from Catholicism to forms of Protestantism. Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Honduras have currently narrowed the gap between the number of Catholics and evangelicals. Meanwhile, El Salvador, Brazil, Costa Rica, Panama, the Dominican Republic, and Bolivia all have populations that are at least 20% evangelical or so. Uh, this percentage is even higher in working class areas. So uh, it just gives you a sense here of maybe from a, you know, the view from a thousand feet or something uh, that Christianity is a, a big force in Latin America. I think also some of those numbers maybe change our perspective of Christianity in Latin America. There's a way and yeah. probably ways that we've talked about it even on the show that paints the whole region as like one homogenous <laughs> big Christian landmass or something. And that's not exactly true. Um, there's also different ways that you can cut up these stats. Like for example, if you look at like, if you look at like stats around baptisms and things like that, you know, a lot of people still get baptized, but whether or not they identify as Christian is not clear uh, or, you know, it, it's kind of the same in the United States, right? You, you, most people in the United States statistically are Christians, but statistically also the sort of amount of people who say they're Catholic and go to mass regularly is like, there's a pretty wide gap right between those numbers. So stats are complicated, but it's good at least to just get maybe a sense of the context we're looking at. And the, the reason that the dossier wants to put it out this way is to say that, look, there's just a ton of Christians running around in Latin America. And that means that people on the left have to think about them, have to figure out what they're saying, what they have to say, what they do for better and for worse. And I think that is, uh, you know, that's what leftists ought to do, right? <laughs> Take stock of the, the material situation and then see what to make of that. Yeah, exactly. The end of this dossier has a lot of really interesting things to say about like a critical perspective about religion. Um, and we'll get to those at the very end of the episode. So if that's what you're excited about, hold on to your butts because it's coming, but not for another 40 minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so cool. That's some good context about like uh, what Christianity looks like there sort of demographically and how that breaks down. And that's good. But you might be wondering well, what does like that type of evangelicalism look like in practice? Or like how does that shake out politically? The dossier starts talking about Brazil like this. The 2014 presidential election in Brazil demonstrated the extent to which political communication had been dressed in religious garb to further agendas such as defending Christian morality and the patriarchal conception of the family. Religion was also used as a tool in the impeachment of President Dilma Rousseff in the Chamber of Deputies in 2016. Uh, the inside baseball here is that uh, uh, Dilma Rousseff was a, a former like uh, cabinet member with Lula, and then was the president after uh, after Lula, but then was deposed because uh, they were um, accused of you know being corrupt. Uh, but um, some critics think that those uh, <laughs> that those <laughs> accusations were uh, not real; they were fabricated after the fact. Um, uh, the vice president would take over, but then after that, it was uh, Jair Bolsonaro. So that was sort of the uh, part of the downward slide uh, back into the Bolsonaroist like sort of fascism <laughs> of of Brazil. A great a great lesson. Okay, but anyways, I digress. This was evidenced, for example, when Eduardo Cunha, then president of the chamber, a Pentecostal belonging to the Assembly of God Church and a key actor in the impeachment process, began the session saying, "This session is open under God's protection." Furthermore, a strong moral and religious message permeated the parliamentarian speech during the impeachment vote, which are broadcast across the country. Although the evangelical section of Brazil's Congress, which accounted for roughly 30% 
36% of all federal deputies in Congress at the time did not have complete control over the process. Its support for the impeachment was fundamental, with 83.35% of the evangelical section voting in favor of Dilma's removal from office. Um, so I tell the story, uh, well, because it's in the dossier, that's why I'm telling it in the first place. But it is a good example of, like, the ways that uh, evangelicalism and, like, you know, evangelicals <laughs> are a part of the governments in these countries, uh, for better and for worse. Not always for worse. Um, the dossier does tell you about some evangelicals who are not bad. Uh, but in this in this sense, you can, you can see the ways that evangelicalism is, like, um, allied specifically with getting progressive candidates out of office. And that is... Um, <laughs> not what you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the other big example that the dossier points to um, is in Bolivia. Uh, I'll just read what they say, and then we can talk it through a little bit more. They say, the grip of religious rhetoric on Latin American politics was evident once again in the 2019 coup against Evan Morales when self-proclaimed interim president Janine Añez marched into the presidential palace holding an oversized evangelical Bible above her head and declared upon seizing power that the Bible has returned to the palace. Añez's grand entrance was predated by her proclamation on Twitter just a few years earlier, quote, I dream of a Bolivia free of satanic indigenous rights. The city is not for Indians. Let them go back to the highlands. An assertion that guided the politics of the coup government and its massacre of indigenous peoples. Um, and, you know, you could proliferate other examples, too. There's kind of a, I don't know, a wave of evangelical influence uh, across Latin America trying to push for right-wing opposition. And it's also not just recent. Uh, in fact, they don't talk about this in the dossier, which I thought was a little surprising. But the big example for me whenever I think of evangelicalism in Latin America is uh, Efren Rios Montt, the dictator in uh, Guatemala. He was in power for like less than two full years, I think. But he was a, a born-again evangelical in the 80s, and he was supported by Pat Robertson and the 700 Club and all that kind of stuff. And, like, he presided over the bloodiest years of the Civil War and explicitly was, like, he ruled as an evangelical dictator. Like, that was his whole brand. So it's, you know, it's not a new thing in Latin America, but it is maybe, like kind of being mobilized in some interesting ways, especially in light of like a different maybe face of imperialism now, U.S. imperialism or like a different tactic. Like, you know, some people talk about the U.S. Uh, use of power these days as a, a hybrid war or a kind of soft power war, lots of different terms. But the point being that it's sort of like the U.S. has exported these cultural identities, cultural ideas, and it promotes those ideas, and it tries to kind of create an organic reactionary front rather than doing like a Bay of Pigs thing in Cuba or something like that, right? Um, yeah. So it is interesting to sort of track, and the dossier is trying to track what are the contemporary manifestations of right-wing evangelicalism and how are they you know, forming this pretty strong bulwark capable of even cooing presidents, uh, some of the most leftist presidents in the region, and 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 holding that power in Bolsonaro's case for a full term, in Añez's case, at least until there was another election, but in pretty significant ways. I found the example about Brazil and the um, expulsion of the, of the president there in 2014 really interesting. I think that was kind of before I was really keyed into maybe what was happening in Latin America. Um, the uh, Bolivia one, I mean, I remember that one happening. <laughs> it was pretty <laughs> terrible. So great to get some, kind of a wider perspective on some of that. So it's it's really helpful. 
You might be wondering, though, how did all of this weird evangelicalism get into Latin America in the first place? Uh, yeah, I think that's a great question that I just made <laughs> up and forced upon you. <laughs> well, it's good that you're uh, it's good that you're praising the imaginary listener anyway. I think that's important. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's the question that I had going into it for sure, right? Because you know that uh, I mean, you hear all kinds of things, especially with regards to Brazil, about how there are you know all these wild. Um, reactionary evangelicals there and that they were supporting Bolsonaro. And it's like, how did these folks get there in the first place? You know, um, you got to imagine that all of the, uh, the, the youth group mission trips didn't do it. So like, how exactly (laughs) did this work out? Um, And I, I think that's important though, because evangelicalism and like the type of fundamentalism that you get in the United States is an invention of the United States. Right. And it doesn't just like appear there because it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, conceived there. So somebody had to bring it there. What does that mean? How did it get there? I guess is the big question. The dossier gives this pretty big overview then of like, how does fundamentalism kind of happen in the United States? And I think that it is like, it's a great story. Like if you're a person who doesn't know about American religion, then this is a great way to maybe get acquainted with that story. I think that if you wanted to do something more exhaustive, there's a lot more things to know, but that's okay. So the overall story, as the dossier tells it, is that, um, okay, so there's Christianity, as you know it, right? But then the Enlightenment (laughs) A great starting point. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's Christianity. It's existing. It's in Europe. And it's, like, great. People are loving it over there, except the people who aren't. But we're not going to talk about them yet because that's too big of a story. But the Enlightenment happens, and then the Enlightenment kind of ushers in all of these new scientific changes to Christianity. Um, some of them are moral readings and some of them are more like uh, academic types of changes that happen to Christianity. The The moral changes that the Enlightenment gives to Christianity will evolve later on in the United States to what's called the social gospel. Um, you know, all of that great sort of gilded era stuff where um, preachers were on strike lines and, and uh, church people were like, going on strike from their churches, all all that extremely good stuff. We've talked about on the podcast before, but you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, And then there's also the more academic piece that I just mentioned a minute ago about historical criticism, right? Applying sort of like scientific reading methods to the Bible and archaeology and kind of like piecing, um, you know, piecing together like what Christianity means in light of those things. So the dossier draws out that, you know, these are the changes that are kind of happening in the Enlightenment and then kind of with uh, more, you know, liberal types of theology in Europe and so on. But then in the United States, there's this really important turn where there's a a type of reaction to these things and and out of which uh, fundamentalism is born. Um, Fundamentalism is a pretty big story in United States religion. Um, A bunch of (laughs) – and I'm, I'm like, glossing it over in, like, the worst way right now. But – Basically, what happens is that there's sort of like an alliance of particular types of uh, American theologians who come together and write these like big 12 volumes of like what are the most essential things about Christianity? The fundamentals. What are the things that are the the, the fundamentals, if you will, right? <laughs> What's like non-negotiable about Christian belief? And, you know, it's um, it's things like the virgin birth. It's things like the resurrection. It's things like the inerrancy of scripture and so on, right? So when people talk about fundamentalism, what they're talking about are, you know, the things that are imperative to the Christian faith that were you to change it, it wouldn't be Christian anymore. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, uh, if you grew up in sort of American Protestantism, you've probably brushed up against fundamentalism in a lot of different ways. And you probably don't like it if you listen to this podcast. <laughs> I know I don't. <laughs> Either that or you don't um, like us. And you should, I mean, find a better way to spend your time. 
<laughs> That's right. If you are a fundamentalist listening to this, please get a better hobby. <laughs> you need to get out more. Just go play video games. Do something else uh, that's more constructive. Um, but the interesting thing about the dossier that they give us is that uh, they they pick up fundamentalism as uh, not just a reaction to sort of liberal theology and, like, uh, that's the end point. But there's a type of imperialist project that kind of goes along with fundamentalism and ultimately evangelicalism as well kind of later on. Um, and this is, a, this is a quote that they kind of use to kick off this, uh, this conversation about the connections between fundamentalism and evangelicalism and imperialism. The dossier says, The Protestant maxim, convert the individual and society will change, sheds light on the approach of evangelicalism and the perceived importance of winning over new believers. No longer is it just individual sin that must be purged, but the sins of all nations. Now, this is like a really, um, this is an important piece, I think, of, of telling the story of, of evangelicalism and of fundamentalism, which um, this dossier kind of plays fast and loose with both of those definitions or, or types of categories of theology. And I think if we were a different type of podcast, maybe we'd get into the weeds more about that. But I think for right now, we don't need to. But anyways, this particular thing here is important um, that uh, that there's this like sort of trend, I think, within fundamentalism to be sort of separatist. But um, with, when it comes to maybe more evangelical um, outgrowths of fundamentalist theology, you get more of this like outward reaching um, political advocacy, imperialist types of projects. Um, we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. But I think it's interesting because the dossier gives a lot of room to talk about um, the ways that evangelicalism is a specifically neoliberal project. And I think that's true, right? Because uh, you might remember, I don't know, um, years ago now, we talked to Adam Kotzko about this book he wrote about uh, demons and neoliberalism. I think it's called Neoliberalism's Demons. <laughs> um, <laughs> a great title for the book, for sure. Uh, but anyways, the, the point of Katsuko's book is that neoliberalism is a type of demonizing type of force, right? It makes you feel like everything is your fault. It's your individual sin that's like at, uh, at, the, at the base of everything. And that's a great way to think about evangelicalism because that's really what it comes down to, right? It's about your individual sin. It's about your conversion moment. It's about you giving your heart to Jesus Christ. Uh, you invite him in. You give him the key. All that great stuff. But what's interesting, though, is that uh, on the one hand, even evangelicalism really focuses on the individual nature of all these things and holds you yourself at fault if something goes wrong. But on the other hand, um, evangelicalism is still, for some reason, <laughs> really interested in what all of these other countries are doing. You know, what is the United States doing? What's happening in Latin America? Um, and so on. So it has this, uh, you know, inwardness to it on the one hand, but also this like very, I think, kind of unexpected outwardness to it um, that ends up being incredibly imperialist mm -hmm. yeah in fact uh this logic that if you convert the individual and society will change is literally the the formula of uh, rios Montt in guatemala just to take one concrete example like he would do these um <laughs> these sunday sermons on tv and he would say basically that but the the strange thing is you might expect that that leads you to a kind of placid or almost passive kind of approach to social change, right? You just go out there, you save the souls and everything else takes care of itself. But the irony is that evangelicalism is often attached to this sort of impatience with that project, right? Um, you're out there trying to save souls, but guess what? People don't want to be saved and the world is uh, this corrupted place. And so if they're not doing it fast enough or not doing it right, you have to force them into it or remove them entirely. 
And that is the maybe fundamental paradox of evangelicalism, even in, in the U.S., right? It's a religion obsessed with personal salvation. It's all about just you and Jesus. No mediators, right? No priest. I mean, there's dozens of mediators, but <laughs> they don't know that <laughs> or don't admit that. Um, there's no mediators, right? It's just you and God, your special personal relationship, etc. And yet there's this like necessary outward um, push to gain political power, to have control over the, you know, the, the public organizing of society um, based on that, that personal change or what you think that personal change affects or should affect. And, you know, there's lots of scholars who've tried to parse out why that paradox is the way it is or why it's not a paradox or how these things all kind of go together. And, you know, we've talked to a number of them in the past. Um, Kotzko does a lot of great stuff with evangelicalism in that book you mentioned. Um, you know, Tad DeLay is a great reading of evangelicalism as this kind of fundamental, like, self-hating death drive that has to actualize itself outside. I think it's a pretty compelling argument. Yeah, uh, the most compelling one. Seems right sure. to me. <laughs> but... uh the most interesting thing to me, though, is however you kind of fall on, you know, what really motivates an evangelical. This is, in a strange way, like a bizarro version of liberation theology's basic commitments as well. Not in a horseshoe theory kind of way, but in a sort of like <laughs> Christians are trying to figure out what to do with categories like salvation and sin. And they cash it out politically in these strange ways. So what I mean by that is like where evangelicalism might say convert the individual and society will change. Liberation theology is basically the opposite, right? There's a place for individual conversion for sure. It's not that they don't care about that, but the the assumption is if we build a better world, people will be more naturally compelled to be interested in, in the truth of the gospel, which is to say living together in, in peace, you know, or um, the idea that not just individual sin must be purged, but the sins of all nations, as they put it in the dossier with respect to the right, there's a way that liberation theologians think that same kind of thing, right? It's not just about our individual sin, but these structural sins that have to be abolished. But because there's a radically different political imagination at work there, uh, both the ways that you identify your individual sins and the kinds of sins you might find in something like a nation or some other kind of structure are radically different. So the dossier is really introducing us to you know, on the one hand, there's this kind of liberation theology core, and they say quite a bit about that. But on the other hand, there's this other, like, you know, strange logic by which evangelicalism is sort of desperate for power in the region. I think they do a good job of tracing that to uh, to a lot of U.S. Um, interests and origins. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just stress that point. Let me read this piece of the dossier. They say the U.S. imperialist project is intimately linked to this fundamentalist religious vision, which asserts that believers have been sent by God to civilize the barbarians. U.S. Protestantism has been used as religious justification for the country's imperialist actions. It's not possible in any analysis to separate imperialism from religious fundamentalism, whose followers see their struggle as a war of good against evil that cuts across not only religion, but also politics, military, power, education, and the environment. I think that these tensions are like extremely prevalent and visible right now, even within the United States, but definitely, you know, between the relationships uh, in Latin America as well. I think, though, there's like, you know, maybe a few things to say about this, too, that like they kind of gloss over, which is OK, because the story they're telling is limited and that's fine to do. Um, you know, that is like the that there is a connection between the U.S. imperialist project and the you know, the religious vision of fundamentalists and evangelicals, that's totally true. 
But also, there's like a deeper history there that I think is worth talking about. I mean, the Doctrine of Discovery and and the Treaty of Tordesillas and all these like um, uh, all these like uh, you know these like colonial era types of uh, Catholic doctrines I think are at heart here too. But I think what's interesting is that evangelicalism does metabolize them in a in a particular way that um, that works with capitalism uh, rather than like the I don't know, mercantile capitalism or whatever mm-hmm. of, uh, of of the 1400s. So all, all I'm trying to say here is that like what Christianity is doing now and that is being labeled as imperialist has sort of a deeper history. And uh, they're both, I think, part of a, a similar vein that that runs through Christian ways of thinking. For sure. And they point out, too, that there's other kinds of fundamentalisms, even like they they say kind of briefly that, you know, there are Catholic right wing people in Latin America, too, and they're out there doing bad stuff. Um, But there is some unique way in which evangelicalism is maybe just more suited to something like neoliberalism. Right. It's I mean, I I think Adam is right. (laughs) The uh, there's something in the logic of evangelicalism that is just mirrored in the way neoliberalism wants us to think of ourselves, right? As fundamentally sinners, incapable of basically saving yourself or uh, doing good works even, or ever feeling good, (laughs) right? Uh, The key is to be constantly hustling for your salvation, not quite sure if you really got it, all that kind of stuff. Um, What's really interesting, though, beyond even the psychology uh, stuff, is that the dossier tries to say that you know, there's this this thing that gets sort of invented in the United States, and we could expand that conversation, but invented in the U.S., gets exported beyond. And it does it, it it's exported in material ways. They don't go into great detail, but they do mention like Billy Graham, for instance, had established this evangelical association that spent tons of money on campaigns in Latin America, was allied to dictatorships. Um, like I mentioned, Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, like all these big people that you know, at some point or another, like they were all touring literal dictatorships in Latin America and like chatting up these uh, awful people, trying to convert them, trying to praise them and so on. And there was a real concerted effort by evangelicals in the U.S. to spread their particular version of Christianity in Latin America. Um, The dossier doesn't say this part, but it just sort of made me think of it as I was reading you know, there is something like profoundly Protestant about the way that evangelicalism develops. And the dossier does a good job explaining how, right? Like you mentioned, Matt, it comes out of um, this uh, strange historical moment where there's this burgeoning scientific historical critical method um, of reading the Bible. And in reaction, uh, the fundamentalists are basically like, we've got to double down on all these <laughs> all these unscientific or unthought through ideas or whatever it might be. And, you know, that all happens in like a pretty uniquely Protestant environment. I mean, there's Catholics running around in that conversation, too, but it's a it's a different kind of thing. And to then export that to Latin America, especially in the 20th century, when there's all this political unrest, you know, it, it ends up taking on its own form. I should say, too, the dossier does like it does admit or kind of allow for other expressions of evangelicalism. It makes room for progressive evangelicalism, which might sound like an oxymoron in the United States. But uh, it's true, strangely, in a strange way to me, too, (laughs) that uh, there are (laughs) there there are progressive evangelicals who are genuinely progressive, like they have evangelical uh, theologies, but nevertheless support radical left wing projects like 
you know, we've talked about them on the show in the past a little bit. Like, uh, you might listen to an episode we did with Jim Hodgson, where we were talking about evangelical support for the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela, for example, or uh, Juan Stam, this really wild guy who studied at Wheaton College and then went to Costa Rica and became an evangelical guy there and, like, talked to Fidel Castro about the Book of Revelation. You know, <laughs> like, there, there's more going on in Latin America, but um, there is something really important, I think, about naming that, like, the U.S. has tried really hard to... Uh, to send that theology to Latin America. And one last thing too, maybe before we move on, like uh, we've mentioned before that the U S has like actively done this, right. It has actively planted evangelicalism, supported evangelicalism in contradistinction to liberation theology. Like it sees it as a wedge, a Trojan horse, you know, or whatever you might say so much so that like in Cuba, right. They have a whole program around trying to fund evangelical voices in that country and really, like, siphoning those voices off from the ecumenical conversations in Cuba, right? So it's, like, they know what they're doing. <laughs> like, um, it's true that there are outliers in Latin America and genuinely good for them. I'm glad there are progressive evangelicals. I think that's great. It should challenge the way we think about evangelicalism. But uh, it's important to sort of recognize, too, that, like, it is literally an imperialist export in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, they're not all bad. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk a little bit more then about um, about about Brazil specifically, right? So uh, I kind of mentioned some stuff earlier, and then we talked about how it got there, and now let's talk about maybe some more some more Brazilian information that you need to know. Um, the dossier kind of picks up Brazil um, with with talking about Bolsonaro. I mean, that's like the uh, prime example, I think, of of uh, most recent history, Bolsonaro is such a wild figure for a lot of different reasons. You know, he's like half man, half COVID, and uh, half emu. The, half emu. The, the emu they love to bite this guy. Um, but here's some interesting things about uh, Bolsonaro. Actually, let's catch it this way: um, Bolsonaro, he was declared. He's, he's a declared Catholic. Was was declared Catholic. Mm-hmm. Maybe he still is. I don't know how it all works, man. I don't know when you stop being Catholic. That's a great question for for somebody else at a different time. <laughs> um, but let me tell you about the time that that Jair Bolsonaro did get baptized <laughs> for at least probably the for probably the second time at least. Big kid okay. baptized. Big kid baptized in Israel. It's a whole thing. A month before the 2016 coup against then President Dilma Rousseff. This is the woman I talked to you earlier about. Um, who was uh, in the Lula government and then became president and then was ousted. Uh, Cooed even, you might say. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro, a declared Catholic, left the Progressive Party and joined the Social Christian Party. At the event confirming his membership, Bolsonaro was baptized, a symbolic ritual for evangelicals, by the president of the party, Pastor Everaldo Pereira, of the Assembly of God Church. The baptism didn't just happen anywhere. It took place in Israel, in the waters of the River Jordan, where the Bible states that Jesus was baptized. This led many to believe that Bolsonaro was converted to the evangelical faith, a strategic move to capture the evangelical imagination. Uh, so there you have it, folks. <laughs> Jared Bolsonaro baptized twice, even though you're not supposed to. He didn't care. He went there. You know, I got to say, if uh, if I was in Israel and I was at the River Jordan, I guess I would probably have to jump in there just to see what it was like. That's right. I don't. No one needs to baptize me in there. I'm just saying I'm going to jump in there. <laughs> a ritual so nice, 
He dunked it twice. Um, <laughs> yeah, an extremely weird guy, Bolsonaro, for a lot of reasons. And uh, it reminds me, too, in the lead up, I think we even talked about it. Maybe it might have been on an episode or on a lock in episode. But um, Lula and Bolsonaro were both like dueling for the attention of evangelicals in some very funny ways. So like <laughs> Lula was out there hanging out with, you know, Catholic monks one day and then evangelicals the next day trying to be like <laughs> playing all sides of the Christian vote, which I think is great. Good for him. Um, and uh, and evangelicals also were like a deciding vote in Brazil. So it's no surprise that Bolsonaro here was like making those pretty grand overtures. He did like I don't know. His religious identity is very weird because he also dedicated Brazil to the Virgin Mary, probably for the 800th time. Um, so, you know, he and like Catholics also statistically did not support Bolsonaro, um, but he was still trying to like court them because Catholicism is also a pretty important religion of the elite and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, an extremely bizarre character in a very, <laughs> a very different religious terrain as well. Totally. I mean, the whole thing, um, it's it, Bolsonaro was building a type of persona, right? He was mm-hmm. trying to like. Uh, build a public image that would resonate with evangelicals so that they would vote for him. And in the end, it worked. I mean, no matter how dumb it looks from the outside, from my perspective on a podcast, it did work. Um, The uh, dossier says that Bolsonaro's victory in the 2018 elections, in which he received 71% of the evangelical electorate's vote, a sector that represents 31% of Brazil's population, despite the campaign's violent, racist, and misogynistic discourse, he got a lot of evangelicals to vote for him, right? 71%. Of 31%. It's still a lot of people, Mm -hmm. um, if you think about it. So there you go. Uh, He, But but he wouldn't have got them unless he had done that work, right? The the public persona building. (laughs) He had to go get (laughs) baptized in Israel. uh, So this all kind of works. And it it did, right? It was a mobilizing mobilizing image for a a lot of people in Brazil. Yeah. um, A a great example, though, I guess, of the ways that, uh, the effect that evangelicalism has on the politics of Brazil. You know, it's funny, people often draw parallels between Bolsonaro and Trump in ways that I think are kind of annoying because, like, they're different in important ways. Brazil is different than the United States, and, you know, it's it's important to attend to those differences. But uh, it does strike me as a, a very interesting similarity of instinct on both of their parts because, like, you know, when Trump was running the first time around, and he there was kind of the whole question of how can evangelicals support this guy who's been divorced a bunch of times and is like a sleazeball or whatever. And what was it was James Dobson, right, who said uh, Trump is a baby Christian that, you yeah. kind of you know, you got to have grace for him and so on. Um, it strikes me as like Trump and Bolsonaro both sort of uh, had the <laughs> the politically astute intuition that like. The point is not to become an evangelical. The point is to basically like do enough to convince them that they should think that you're an evangelical, right? And defend you (laughs) among other evangelicals. And I think that's important as well because evangelicalism is like a remarkably flexible kind of Christian politics. And in fact, in the dossier, they conclude by putting it pretty well, I think. They say, religious fundamentalism has entered the political sphere to affirm a capitalist model of society, which currently appears with a neo-fascist face. Fundamentalism in alliances with neoconservatism that has advanced in Latin America in recent years centers a moral discourse that is based on the traditional family and reproductive issues. Furthermore, it's built a seemingly unshakable base amongst the working class, which it has moved to support a project of which it is the main victim. 
And I think that is really the key, right? Like, as much as people talk in ways that are also not true about, like, Trump in the working class in the U.S., for example, like, Trump did not win the working class vote, surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, I guess, depending. I mean, it was close, whatever, but he didn't win it. Um, but there's a story people tell where they're like working, working people are dumb and they vote against their own interests. Uh, the sort of troubling thing about evangelicalism in Latin America is that it is actually displacing liberation theology among working class populations. And we can talk about why that is maybe in a minute, but it's a, um, I don't know, a combination of a lot of factors, uh, but most specifically like liberation theology being disciplined by both the state and its own church that kind of created a a big void in which evangelicalism is, you know, basically there to say, like, uh, it's there to be literally the opiate of the masses in the negative way, right? <laughs> it is like performing the function that Marx uh, identifies in in the the worst possible caricature of itself. It, it uh, the brutalities of capitalism they happen to you every day, but you go to church on Sunday and you're basically like, well, I can get through another week because I have Jesus or whatever. I don't have to form a union. I don't have to yell at my boss. I just have to, you know, give it all to God and everything will be fine. So uh, it's good mm-hmm. the, the way the the dossier really um, points that out as a, a danger as well, that it's an ideology that has to be combated. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, uh, you were mentioning the the Trump and Bolsonaro thing before, and I think that's uh, you're right. It is annoying for a lot of reasons. The one thing that that does uh, that this uh, this dossier does make me like a question that makes me raise is uh, the use of the term fundamentalism makes you think that there are that there's like something really like, that there's some kind of like bedrock at the bottom of Christianity for these people, mm-hmm. like theologically speaking. And I think that. The fr- the word fundamentalism kind of functions against <laughs> against a better understanding of of like an evangelical type of re- religion. Yeah. Um, and so this is maybe based on just like a handful of things that I'm kind of pulling together in my brain. So I don't know. Maybe it could be refuted, and I'd be open to that for sure. But I, I was thinking of uh, there was like this uh, this poll that came out um, at the end of last year. That was asking evangelicals in the United States like questions about what they believe theologically. And, you know, the answers were, I think, like strikingly all over the place. Like, you know, do do evangelicals believe that Jesus Christ is actually God? <laughs> you know, and uh, evangelicals are like, well, I'm not so sure about this or, <laughs> or whatever. And I guess what's uh, what's wild to me about the whole thing is that out of this like fundamentalism and out of this like type of evangelicalism become like out of the fundamentalism and evangelicalism, there isn't like a lot of theological frameworks or nuances that end up being like deciding factors, but there are a whole lot of like uh, really peripheral social concerns, like about, I don't know, like normative gender roles and uh, trans people and, you know, like LGBTQ topics, right? Like those become like sort of the center stage in all of these conversations um, rather than theological things, which is funny because, you know, at the end of the day, fundamentalism is about a certain, like a certain set of <laughs> fundamental theological ideas. <laughs> but in the, in these political movements, those are not important, like whatsoever. They're sort of fall to the wayside. Yeah. I mean, we've said this dozens of times in the podcast in the past, I think, but like, you know, something that I think is so funny about having been an evangelical for a little while in my life is that I, I was a pretty fundamentalist person insofar as like I actually thought the fundamentals were important, right? <laughs> the Bible's true, 
And if it's if it says it, I believe it. And if you do that, all of a sudden, you're probably actually not going to be a Republican. You're going to be a complete weirdo for sure. And you're going to have bad reactionary opinions, no doubt. But like you're not going to be able to be comfortable. I don't know, like saying the pledge of allegiance to the to the flag. Right. And that's the thing about evangelicalism and fundamentalism is I, I think you're right. Like calling it fundamentalism or collapsing everything into that term misses something because what's so profound about evangelicalism is that it's really not that committed to, you know, understanding what the Bible has to say or um, believing it (laughs) or acting upon it. Um, It really does function. Evangelicalism functions in that kind of Marxist sociological way, which is to say there are material conditions in the world. We live in a capitalist society evangelicalism is that halo around the veil of tears as Marx puts it, right? It's like, it is the, the theological window dressing that you kind of lay over all the material contradictions in the world. And of course, other traditions do it too. Like there are Catholic ways of being ideologically capitalist that cash out differently than evangelicalism. Um, there are, you know, all kinds of other kinds of ways of, of, uh, being <laughs> ideological or whatever, but evangelicalism does have this like, kind of really strange combination of like total flexibility on the one hand and this like veneer of complete commitment to like a bedrock yeah. that is just not there. Like it's a, it's an ingenious yeah. sort of ideological circuit that is very good at completing itself. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Right. Feigning that, uh, that there's something that's like ultimately important in your life when really there's not, <laughs> when there's really not very much that's important. It's uh, uh it's Wiley Coyote theology is what it is. You know, don't look down. Yeah, that's that's a great point. <laughs> don't look down. Uh, yeah, just keep running and hope that the wall is actually a tunnel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yep. Well, uh, not us though. For us, God will make a way, and that is through the rest of this dossier. <laughs> Uh, that's right. <laughs> so maybe we can move to the the most interesting part of it. The analysis is all great. You can read it all in more detail. But what I think is actually really fascinating is that the dossier as a as a thing, as like a textual product, is these left wing folks, Marxist folks, thinking about religion in a complicated, nuanced way. They have a pretty good section on liberation theology, by the way, that we are totally just glossing over because I feel like. We've talked about it all at length on the podcast, but oh yeah, I mean you can find it there, and you should you should go read how they talk about it. It's great, um, but uh, they conclude on some pretty interesting notes where they draw from um, different voices in the Marxist tradition to basically offer like a better Marxist hermeneutic for a sympathetic understanding of why it's important to engage Christianity because. You might think getting through this whole dossier about like how bad evangelicalism is that they're just going to be like, and that's why we have to like crush Christianity because it is only ever an enemy of the working class. And like if they said that at the end, I would get it <laughs> like I would understand. Uh, but that's not the direction they go. In fact, they go to great lengths to be like, despite all of this, nevertheless, there's something else going on in religion. And they can say that because they point to the contributions that Christians have made in Nicaragua, in El Salvador, in Brazil, in all these places where Christians are at the forefront of revolutionary change. So they talk about uh, Gramsci and Maria de Guay in particular, an Italian and a Peruvian. Uh, Matt, do you want to start in in any place in particular, any part of the world, Italy or Peru? Italy. Great. All right. I'm going to let you talk about Gramsci then. (laughs) Okay. Sounds good. Uh, Gramsci, everyone's favorite Italian Marxist uh, who was jailed. (laughs) 
Yeah, I okay. So I think that they kind of start off uh, talking about Marxism and religion, I think, in a, in a more interesting way than a lot of Marxists do. And I'll just kind of read this quote and we'll, we'll sort it out. The dossier says, a Marxist perspective seeks out the counter-hegemonic currents that exist within forces of religion. We know that believers are not simply passive followers. And to the contrary, it is through their religion that they produce and reproduce worldviews which are not without contradictions and, and reformulations. As Gramsci points out, there's one Catholicism for the peasants, one for the petty bourgeois and town workers, and one for women, and one for the intellectuals, which is itself variegated and disconnected. This is also the case with evangelicals. In discussing religion, we are discussing a multitude of realities that exist within a single faith. It is important not to generalize or homogenize evangelicals in Latin America as if they are all fundamentalists or as if they were all manipulated. It's not enough for the left to repeat the anti-religious sentiment of some Western Marxist thinkers when it comes to religion in the global South. I appreciate this perspective because it's just like, it's a, it's, it's a very Marxist thing to say, a very Marxist way to go about it. And it's extremely sociological and it's like true. <laughs> and I think that's why I like it because it's because they've got it right. Uh, <laughs> that uh, there's all kinds of different perspectives within religion and you have to take them seriously. Like if you really want to think about how to... Um, you know, deal with the reactionary currents within Christianity. You can't just like write Christians off as people who have been tricked. That won't do it. Taking people <laughs> not very seriously is not a great way to like win them over, I think, in the first <laughs> place. So I, I like this this particular perspective, right, that um, not all religious people are regressive. Um, certainly there are all kinds of contradictions within all of our beliefs. And I think like even within Marxist beliefs, that's probably true. But um, finding the ways that there are counter-hegemonic currents and ideas within Christianity that can be um, leveraged, I mean, in faithful ways too, right? Not in, not in bad ways. In faithful ways to get around and to, like, defeat the reactionary currents. Good. Great. Love it. <laughs> Extremely good ideas. The point, too, about believers not being passive but being uh, productive, reproductive, I think that is really important as well, that it's not just, like, People receive their religion and, you know, Richard Dawkins style, you never reflect on it yeah. or you never question it. And that's why you're religious. Like, I mean, to a certain extent, that's true for everyone and also true about literally everything that we think <laughs> and feel and believe. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, important to kind of recognize the the uh, the engine that's available uh, through religion as well, the creative side of it. Um that is uh, maybe a, a good excuse to talk about Maria de Guay as well. We can talk about some more quotes in here too, but I really like how they draw off of him um, because he was really invested in that as well. The, the productive or imaginative capacities available in uh, religious thinking. So here's what they say. The Peruvian Marxists, Jose, Carlos, Maria de Guay, Maria de Guay. I don't know. I'm bad at pronouncing it. There's too many accents in it and uh, my bad Midwest mouth can't do it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Maria Tegui, using Miguel de Unamo's concept of agony, the inner suffering or struggle that humans face, spoke of the need to re-enchant the working class. In other words, to overcome people's disenchantment with life. By the way, that's great because it's a way better way of doing it than like, uh, I don't know, Eugene McCarr or whatever. Both <laughs> revolutionary Marxists and revolutionary Christians were agonic souls fighting for this re-enchantment. This revolutionary agony for Maria Tagui translates into overcoming the antagonism between faith and atheism by equating revolutionary emotion and religious emotion. 
In truth, what Mary Edelgai meant is that what moves us as agonic beings toward justice is more than what any institution can define. It's a deep feeling, a longing for something not yet real, but which we seek to build as a vital necessity. Marietta Guy broadens the customary way of talking about religion. He provokes us, arguing that a revolution is always religious, not that it has to do with institutional religion, but that it seeks to answer the deep feelings and longings that are not satisfied under capitalism. Uh, really great stuff. Good poetic imagery. Also, as a, a wild piece of trivia, um, Gustavo Gutierrez, one of the founding fathers of liberation theology, he actually was a schoolmate of one of uh, Marietta Guy's uh, kids. I think his like youngest son, maybe. Um, and he quotes him a bunch in uh, theology of liberation. So, also a, a really wild direct connection to <laughs> a pretty important Communist Party intellectual there with liberation theology. But um, anyway, uh, you know, if if Gramsci gives us like the counter hegemony part, right, that religion is always mixed up in this sort of ruling hegemony on the one side, but counter hegemony on the other. Marietta Guy is giving us even like a maybe like a bigger cosmic vision of all that or or like a more existential vision, which is to say there's actually something sort of deeply, you know, religious, for lack of a better word, because religion is not actually a very good word for it. <laughs> but for lack of a better one, it gives us this kind of faith orientation toward the future, toward alternatives, toward possibility. And to sort of close a dossier on that, you know, I think is such a like conciliatory um, gesture toward people of faith, mm -hmm. right? Like the dossier is not trying to close off a conversation with people of faith by criticizing it. On the contrary, it's basically like inviting people of faith to sort of work together to produce a more compelling alternative than what's on offer in, you know, fundamentalist evangelicalism. I think that's great. Totally. I'm a little bit skeptical, kind of like you were saying a minute ago of the, it's all religion all the way down kind yeah. of argument. Uh, but the uh, the language, though, that um, that that religion and revolution are both trying to answer the questions of like the the, the feeling of longing that uh, things are bad and they could be better is uh, is a little bit compelling. It's all <laughs> eschatology, maybe all the way down is, <laughs> is it, or something. Right. Uh, well, they they close with a good way of bringing this all together. And maybe that's a way we can start uh, moving ourselves to our close too. they say. In order to strengthen resistance to religious fundamentalism and its misogynist and hateful discourse, it's essential to construct alternative conceptions and narratives that are meaningful to and resonate with the working class and peasantry. This counter-hegemonic discourse and resistance can only advance by setting the languages of faith and struggle into dialectical relationship with one another. Fundamentalism has reacted to advances in the progressive camp and has effectively incorporated some of its components in their strategy. Similarly, the progressive camp must look at why this has been successful and extract meaningful lessons to strengthen projects that further the interests of the working class. This must be done through a lens that has been discarded by Marxism in recent decades, one that critiques anti-religious thought. So there you have it. Great. <laughs> a great invitation for us all to work together. You gotta love it. You love to see it. <laughs> I do gotta love it. I do love to see it. I think it's great. I mean, in a lot of ways, it does echo what we're doing on this podcast all the time, right? Trying to give people those those other stories, those counter hegemonic moments, uh, the permission to do something different. And uh, good, you should.
should figure it out. <laughs> um, maybe by way of kind of closing, I think um, we could maybe just close on this note together. Like one thing I really liked about the dossier is whenever we talk about liberation theology in this podcast, with a few exceptions, for the most part, it's like we like read a book that's 30 or 50 years old and we're like, what a great idea someone had decades ago. Um, and I think that's good and important. I think more people should do that. We've got to resurrect liberation theology. We got to get into it, but it's great to have resources like this that also sort of are dealing with like the current mutations of religion or Christianity in Latin America in the 21st century. And I think that is actually like sadly pretty hard to find in English these days. Um, so it's great that a leftist, uh, community has put something like this out there. And I think it's also like a pretty big vindication of some of the conversations happening in Latin America during the disciplinary phase of liberation theology, like in a penny of their nose book, people of God, um, a great journalistic reporting story about uh, liberation theology. She's basically like, I forget which church diocese it was, or maybe it was a conference of bishops or somebody, but in Latin America, they commissioned this study to be like, you know, why are some people leaving the Catholic Church? And guess what? It's because like all the all the people who are really psyched about the church suddenly coming out to the barrios, organizing a union, like getting really involved in peasant struggles and so on. When the church started clamping down on that, they were disinterested. What a big surprise. <laughs> like, you know, and uh, evangelicalism is is filling that void. So it's like a sad um, manifestation of something that people knew, like, 40 years ago that this was going to happen. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, like, sad to have it vindicated, but also, like, important to be, like, yeah. It, like, literally everybody was saying this was going to happen, and guess what? It did. Like, it's important to remember that for, for the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Magnificast. If you do support us there, we appreciate it. It's nice of you to do that. And we like it. Uh, you can get access to our Behind the Paywall podcast, The Lock-In. It's back, and it comes out one time every month. Um, on that podcast, we do some goofy stuff. Like, we uh, answer <laughs> the uh, the hottest questions on the Christianity subreddit for you. And uh, you can also get access to the uh, our, our super secret behind the paywall discord channel where we talk about i don't know pets stuff happening current events <laughs> union drives all kinds of good stuff it's a great community to be a part of and uh it's it seems like it's been growing a lot lately which has been cool seeing a lot of new faces pop up there so that's nice yeah and if you already um, support us on patreon thanks for putting that bread in our pocket and you'll know what that means if you're on the discord right that's now that's an inside joke <laughs> that's right you'll get it you'll know exactly what that means our intro music is by Amari Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church, we'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation, never get tired, never bored, don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Where you keep your hoods up
stay up late Oh, don't mind a cold night But we might mind if you leave too soon So come on now, it's still early At least I would have